Hi, I'm Dr. Jenna Hatcher, and you're listening to Behind the Beaker. Hello to all the science listeners out there, and welcome. My name is Udbha Venkatraman, your host and a science reporter for The Daily Wildcat. You're listening to Behind the Beaker, the Daily Wildcat science podcast. Today, we speak with Dr. Jenna Hatcher, who is a professor at the University of Arizona, Mel and Enid Zuckerman College of Public Health in Phoenix, and is also the Associate Director for Community Outreach and Engagement for the University of Arizona Cancer Center. Today's episode will delve into health disparities, community-engaged research, and we'll have some pretty awesome stories. All right. So thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today, Dr. Hatcher. Um, Let's get right into it. So um, what were you like as a kid growing up? Were you always interested in science? And, you know, how would you describe yourself? I would describe myself as a kid growing up the same way I describe myself now. I was geeky and nerdy, and I always liked science and math. But I didn't know that that was geeky and nerdy. And so I kind of don't know that now I just do whatever I do. I was passionate as a kid, just like I am now. And I, I uh, was, I merged to probably a different drummer than most people, just like I do now. So I, I think I've been like this for more than 50 years. And that's how I was as a kid. Different. Could you talk a little bit about um, your educational journey? What sorts of experiences pursued um, led you to pursue nursing as a career? So, so I think I think this about most nurses. I think I was always interested in taking care of people, animals, and taking care of things. And so, as a kid, I was always interested in taking care of things. When I got to college, I thought I want to take care of people. So I originally decided I was going to be a pharmacist because I thought, you know, I thought that had a great job path, if you will. But then I I realized that doing pharmacy, I would not have a whole lot of caring for people involved in it. So about the second year of college, I switched to nursing because of the hands-on involvement with just taking care of people. So I I got an associate's degree in nursing early on because I married somebody in the military, moved to Massachusetts, and uh, I got an associate's degree in nursing. I later got a bachelor's and a master's. I have a master's in nursing and a master's in public health. It The educational journey was a long one, as is the case for non-traditional students. I, I think I consider myself non-traditional with that associate's degree, then a bachelor's when I was in my 30s. Uh, I did a whole bunch of nursing, being married to someone in the military in different places across the country, leading me to take care of, it, it kind of is the journey to what I do today, is taking care of different cultures, different populations. I worked in Massachusetts as a nurse, taking care of a lot of people who were uh Portugal in descent and had different kind of barriers to healthcare and noticing that people who have different, um, who look different, who are different than the majority population experience different outcomes. And so I nursed in Massachusetts, in Louisiana, in Alabama, in various places across the country. And along that journey as a staff nurse, I was a critical care nurse, um, for uh, in ICUs and recovery rooms and other places where people experience critical illnesses. And I realized that based on who you were, the outcome was often different 
for your disease, which meant to me, wait a minute, we know how to fix this, but certain people don't get the same fix that other people get. And seeing that across the country in various populations, I have a 32-year-old daughter who was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and I have a 26-year-old daughter who was born in Fresno, California. So coast-to-coast nursing. Uh, And seeing that in those places where people who have brown skin and, and black skin don't have the same outcomes led me to pursue more education, to try to understand what, what, why would, if I know how to fix this, how come some people don't get the same fix? And so that nursing journey led to the educational journey that led me to say, I want to know not just why, but how to fix this problem. And so I've been a nurse for 32 years and along that journey gotten more and more education that helps me to understand this problem and to be a part of the fix for health disparities, which is the problem that I've been thinking about since I was 18 years old and seeing that people have different outcomes. Um, do you have any uh, like specific stories that uh, you would like to share about your experience as a nurse? I have lots of nursing stories. That That's for sure, Pete. St- students who, uh, and particularly when you're a critical care nurse, uh, and you've taken care of people in their most desperate situations. I have lots of different stories about how I learned how to understand culture and how to understand people. So one of those stories is a woman who came in. I used to be a triage nurse in the emergency department. I had a woman who came in who looked to be nine months pregnant to me. So the triage nurse is the first person you see in an emergency department who tries to understand what your issue is. And she comes in, she's a tiny woman with a, she's clearly nine months pregnant. And she says, you know, I was at dinner and I'm having, I'm, I'm having these pains. And I, you know, I was working in uh, Appalachia at that time. And so I'm clearly not Appalachian. And so often you're speaking, uh, we think of language as being like someone speaking Spanish and I'm speaking English, but there's a language to rural Appalachia that I don't particularly speak. So mm-hmm. when I'm a triage nurse, I'm trying to, to try to understand you in the language that you speak. And I say, so how many months are you? And she, she goes, what do you mean months? Months of what? I'm like, I, th- I think I need to adjust what I'm saying to her. She doesn't understand. I said, how far along are you? I thought that maybe that'll get it. She's like, far along where? I'm like, this woman does not understand that I'm trying to see how many months pregnant are you? So I finally said, so you're pregnant. She says, what? You think I'm pregnant? I'm like, she has three children in the lobby with her. Just to put that in perspective, she's got Mm -hmm. three children in the lobby. She's clearly about to give birth and she doesn't know she's pregnant. So I'm trying to get on the same page with her. And in the ER, we're always trying to get you out of there. I don't want to I don't want to deliver your baby Mm -hmm. in the ER. I want you to deliver that baby upstairs at the security of the labor and delivery units. I'm trying to move this woman along. But I literally have to perform a, a quantitative and qualitative pregnancy test on her in order to convince her that she is pregnant and now in labor. And uh, that is one of my experiences of trying to get on the same page with someone culturally who has had three children and is, four, is nine months pregnant. She gives birth to a full term baby within the hour upstairs. I got her up there quickly into the OB unit. But 
it was at the, the other nurses are just laughing at me, just like Jenna can't figure out how to get this woman to, you know, understand that she's asking how pregnant they're in the back, just keeling over with laughter. But I finally get her to understand. She's like, I can't believe it. I'm going to have to tell my mother I'm pregnant. I'm like, if your mother has eyes at all, she knows you're pregnant. <laughs> you know? but, but that's one one of, of those kind of stories. Also, a, another story is I dealt with a person who had been stabbed with a, a steak knife to the heart in intensive care. And uh, this is one of those intensive cares. Nowadays, they're very segmented intensive cares. You got a heart patient or you got a kidney patient. This was a catch-all intensive care in Louisiana called Hugh P. Long. It's a charity intensive care. We got Everything that came in the door that was really sick came to us. And so this person had been stabbed in the heart with a kitchen knife, a steak knife. And uh, that's a really he had some, you know, bleeding, pretty severe injuries. The person who stabbed him was with him. And so that's another cultural thing. I had to get through my mind. Okay, your your offender is here. And he continued to ask for her. It was a domestic thing. And he left that hospital with that person. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they were together. And to me, you know, in my mind, somebody stabs you in the heart. You probably want the police and you don't want to be with them. But culturally, this was that was kind of the way they rolled. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn that, you know, uh, it's not me. I can't judge what you do and who you do it with and how you do it. All I'm here to do is take care of you and help you get better. And you get to define health for yourself. I get to take care of you and I get the privilege of helping you get healthy, but your health is defined by you and not by me. And so it really have had a lot of those type of experience. I was on the front line when HIV was, we were understanding how to deal with people with HIV. It reminds me of COVID currently when you're the frontline workers and you don't know how to protect yourself and you can't make the judgment. If you just had not had unprotected sex, I would not be putting myself in danger for you right now. If you just do, if you just wear a mask, I don't have to be in danger. If you just put on a condom, I don't have to endanger my life. It's, it's so I was at that time nursing when we were in the 80s, when we were learning how to do that. And the, the lesson you learn, I'm sure that we got some PTSD coming out of this, these nurses right now is it's not a, again, it's not a judgment. I can't make people do the right thing. All I can do is help them get back to a healthy state and not um, and not concern myself with the fact that they've done something to put themselves in this state and to endanger my life. I'm just here to take care of them. And it is exhausting. But that's that's what nurses do. And so I, I learned a lot of lessons in, in this um, in my staff frontline nursing days that that applied to I don't do staff nursing now. I You know, I have a Ph.D. and I. I work with communities. But those lessons are valuable in helping me work, I think, more effectively with the communities now. Along this journey, did you have any uh, mentors that played a significant uh, role in your career and personal development? And what sort of impact did they have? I've had a, a lot of great mentors, uh, particularly I've had lots of great mentors in the, the medical arena when I was doing staff nursing, but particularly as I decided to go into health disparities and to try to navigate this field. And the, the ones that are most impressive to me are other women and women who are minorities mm -hmm. that can help me, that have helped me to understand how it looks to be in 
to emerge in leadership in a field like this. It's a field that, you know, people sometimes don't think of as science. Oh, you do health disparities. That's kind of common sense to, uh, to push the science part of health disparities and health equity. I've had a lot of mentors who have really helped me position myself well uh, to be a leader in this, this kind of field and to understand the barriers that women and women of color face trying to be in any kind of leadership field, but particularly in one that people, like I said, think you don't really do science. That's just common sense. And, and mm. you know, there's there community engagement is a science and health disparities and health equity is definitely a science. Definitely. And sort of just uh, going along what you were talking about. So what um, what finally inspired you to or like catalyzed you to end up pursuing the PhD? And um, could you talk about your experience um, getting the PhD and what lessons did you learn from it? Yeah, I, I finally, as I said, I spent a lot of years doing staff nursing and getting that kind of foundation of, of taking care of people. And along that journey, as I said, noticing that depending on who you are, you're going to likely have a different outcome inspired me to kind of say, I, I want to be a part of the solution to this. Like I said, as a kid, I've, I kind of never marched down the, the, the straight and narrow. So when I read books or textbooks in nursing school, I often thought, I don't, I don't believe what's in this textbook. I think this is written for some, from someone's point of view that has a very narrow point of view. And so I want to write the textbook that people read that gives another perspective that and I thought the people who write these textbooks and who lead this field have PhDs. So I'm going to need to get a PhD so that people can hear another perspective from someone who is not the same as them. Many of these books and articles being written by white males. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, if they just could hear from someone who's not Ha doesn't have the same vision. Not that that vision is not important, but that vision is not all that there is. So that made me, after caring for all of these people, say there should be textbooks, there should be articles, there should be research that looks at this problem in a different way, ask a different question, uh, gets a different answer just because you asked a different question. And so the people who ask the research questions have PhDs. And the people who formulate those questions, the scientists have PhDs. And the only way you get the right answers is to ask the right questions. So I knew that in order for me to put those questions out into the universe of science, I needed to have a PhD in order to write those textbooks, those articles that influence the evidence that's in the scientific field. I needed to have a PhD. So that's that's what I did. I have a, a master's. I'm a family nurse practitioner. And I knew once I got that master's, this is not, this is an expert and skilled clinician. And I, I'm happy to have been that for some time, but that's not where I'm going. Where I'm going is to the scientific field. I want to know how to practice so I can understand how to influence that practice, but I don't want to be an expert clinician necessarily. I want to be a scientist that, that guides those clinicians in the right direction. And so uh, what, what kind of work did you do on your PhD? So I did a dissertation that looked at the mental health of African-American single moms. And uh, I started along that journey because there was some sec uh, already a data, some data out there that someone else had collected. And I thought, OK, I want to learn how to work 
with cultures. I wasn't necessarily uh, concerned with what disease process I looked at. I was more concerned with learning how to engage a community of people. And so my dissertation was about mental health. And I have several papers out there about self-esteem and mental health. But what I set out to do with that dissertation was understand how to engage a community, how to understand their perspective, how to present that and disseminate that perspective to the scientific community. And I think that's what that uh, that journey, the PhD, the dissertation helped me to do. Interestingly, I thought this will be easy because I'm an African-American single mom, so I already know what they're going to say. And what I learned was I don't know what anyone is going to say. My perspective is not necessarily the same as anyone, and there's no just one size fits all. Just because I happen to be African-American, I can't speak for 12 million other people. We don't have the same experiences. Even if I'm a single mom, I might not have the same experience. I'm not necessarily, I don't have entree into this group just because I look like them. I have to respect the group. I have to understand them. I have to listen to them and not go in with this preconceived notion. I already know what you're going to say. I know why you had four babies. I've already decided what your answer is going to be before you give it. I had to learn during that dissertation to go in with an empty mind and really listen to people and then be able to take their perspective and present it to the scientific community as important as any other perspective is and uh, not not try to tell my story or through my lens, but to be able to tell other people's story through their own lenses. Correct me. So you got your PhD at the University of Kentucky, right? I did. Yep. Yeah. So um, from that point, uh, could you talk about the journey um, that led you to starting up the Dream Center? And how, how do you start up a center? Like, you know, that, 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 that was quite the journey, but you've heard, you've heard part of it. it it's the Dream Center is uh, disparities researchers equalizing access for minorities. That's what the Dream stands for. And as I was at Kentucky, I noticed the same things that I was noticing so far, that disparities research is a science that's often overlooked as a science and that minorities need not just equal outcomes or or I don't even think of it as equal, but optimal outcomes. And part of getting those optimal outcomes is equalizing that access. So the Dream Center, I, over many years of, of both practice and research, came about because I thought there are strategies we can use to equalize that access. And one of those strategies is to build a cadre of people like me who are doing this kind of science and this kind of practice, who understand how important it is, who understand different strategies, who get the networking capacity that often disparities researchers don't get, especially people who don't look like the other scientists, who don't fit in with the other scientists, that we can prepare ourselves in a different way and present our science in a way that the scientific community accepts. So when I had an opportunity at Kentucky, I was, a, I was about to leave Kentucky because I thought this is maybe not the place that can best work out for me. Uh, I was presented with a retention offer. And they said, what, what would it take to get you to stay here in Kentucky? And I said, if I could start this center, if you give me money and an opportunity and time to start a center that focuses on this, then I will stay in Kentucky. 
And so uh, the leadership at the University of Kentucky gave me money and time to start my center. And that's and they believed in the idea enough to give me some time and some money. And so the key part of that that I left at Kentucky was the dream scholars because one of the key parts of the center itself, there were other pieces of the center, but the key thing I wanted to do was develop this group of emerging scholars who knew what disparities were, who knew how to advance our science from, and I wanted them to not just be nurses because I thought that attacking uh, health disparities and health equity has to come from a variety of disciplines. So we need to be multidisciplinary. We need to be able to look at this problem in terms of the social determinants, in terms of the health parts of it, in terms of community priorities. So I brought together a group of scholars who looked like what I thought could solve that problem, and we call them the dream scholars. And so we had a probably initially five or six scholars that we set goals together. We tried to look at the science together. We wanted to present that science uh, to the scientific community in a certain way. And I wanted to groom them to have careers or help. And my career was also emerging. I wanted us to develop careers together that impacted health equity. And so I left that group of scholars uh, there. They're doing all doing very well. We put out, we do retreats. We put a lot of papers out and I wanted them to be um, known for health disparities. So I wanted them to be grounded in what actually health disparities are in a real firm foundation of, of what we can do about uh, those disparities and how to try to optimize health equity. And so I believe I was pretty successful at Kentucky in creating a group of scholars that have, have done that from a, a variety of disciplines. And that program remains and now continues uh, in Arizona. So why did you end up deciding to uh, come to Arizona and you know how how has it been different from Kentucky? Oh, so ask that. Tell me the beginning of your question again. How uh, did I? Why did you decide to come to Arizona after um, starting up the program there and coming here? So I I I I was being I, being uh, called into higher leadership, if you will. I thought mm -hmm. that one of the ways that we as scholars can impact this and, and uh, take a look at health disparities is that there should be diversity uh, in higher levels of leadership. That's one thing that I think helps to take a different look at health disparities. And so I thought that, you know, sometimes you, you can't advance where you grew up, if you will. So I kind of cut my teeth in Kentucky with populations there, rural Appalachians, uh, African-Americans, with the scientists there, with getting some training there. But I thought, number one, I want to work with some other populations. Arizona is very different from Kentucky. Now I'm working with populations that are largely Latino and American Indian. I had no experience with those populations in Kentucky, and I wanted to spread my wings to engage communities that were uh, different from the ones I had been engaging to see if kind of these strategies that this toolbox that I had developed for for working within communities carried into other communities that were very different from rural Appalachians or or urban African-Americans that you get in Louisville, Kentucky or Lexington, Kentucky. And so when Arizona came calling, I thought, OK, this is this is an opportunity to see if this works. 
uh, the, the area where I work now is about 40% Latino. And I had never had any experience working in Latino populations. And we have about three times the American Indians that, that we have in the, the rest of the country. So I knew that I would be able to go into places like Navajo and understand how do you get entree into uh, Navajo communities, understand their problems, work with them, see who the gatekeepers are, use your community engagement strategies to engage a different community and see if we can move them toward uh, optimal health outcomes. Same thing with Latinos who suffer some stunning disparities and how can I work within those communities? So that's what propelled me to come to Kentucky and also to see, can we create some dream scholars that also have uh, an interest in Latino health and American Indian health? And, um, and also it's warm in it's also warm in Arizona and it's sunny and it doesn't rain and it's not cold like it is in Kentucky. And I was tired of cold and rainy and gloomy skies. And I wanted Phoenix, Arizona, where it's warm and sunny almost every day of the year. Mm, I, lo I, I love hot weather, too. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsors. Diddy Wildcat essentially is a collaborative learning community made up of university students, journalism students, um, photography students that essentially all come together to put their skills to produce uh, news, um, online media, digital media, all these sort of things outside of the classroom. The Daily Wildcat is the student newspaper at the University of Arizona. We serve the student body as well as the rest of the Wildcat community in trying to chronicle what's going on on campus. We're just a really fun group of people. It's a good balance of having a good time and still being able to get our work done and focus and effectively communicate and yeah, it's a lot of fun very different than anything I've ever done in the fact that it's media related and newspaper so it's not like you're serving people food or running a cash register so it's a hands-on way to interact with the world around you that I think is really fun. Daily Wildcat serves people who just who are just like passionate and ambitious about their projects. But Daily Wildcat's print and print stories. So, I mean like if you have a passion for it come on over. I mean we're always accepting people. The So uh, just like following up on um, what, you know, what you were talking about, so can you talk a little bit more about what sorts, uh, when you say community engagement strategies, like what sorts of strategies do you, um, do you try to implement? So, so when I think about working with communities, I think that those communities should partner to set the agenda. So one of the first things I do is understand if from a community, I engage them to understand what do you what is important to you in terms of your health? Like I talked about earlier, the communities should define health. They should help me to understand. I have a certain set of skills. I'm a scientist, but I should be able to use that skill set to help a community move in the direction they want to move in. So part of the strategies I use is to embed myself in a community and understand what their priorities are. Are. So that's things like focus groups and understanding key informants and key stakeholders within a community. Who are the gatekeepers? Who holds the key to the health of this community? So, for example, for African-American communities, 
often we're matriarchal. The women in this community hold the keys to the health. If you want to get to prostate cancer, you're still going to need to go through the women in that family to help them understand or help understand, is this an important thing for you and do how, how does it look for your, the men in this community to be healthy? You want that thing to go, if you're talking about prostate cancer, you're going to involve families in African-American communities. It's a collective kind of society versus just, I'm going to go stalk straight to these men and I'm going to disregard their women or children. And so part of that strategy is to understand what kind of culture is within those communities. The way that I often approach that is to just talk to the people in that community to try to understand how do you how do you do this? How does your family take care of your health? And that's just getting to know them and building a team that is composed of the people that you're you're working with. And so my team in Arizona, for example, the director of outreach that works for me is Navajo. And she uh, was born and raised in on Navajo Nation and has a PhD in toxicology, understanding the environment that Navajo people are in, but also more importantly, understanding the cultural norms for Navajo and other tribal members too. So she helps me to not make huge mistakes when engaging with a Navajo community, which I could clearly make like wearing some, maybe some snake shoes, to a meeting with Navajo, she's like, you're probably not going to wear those snake mm -hmm. shoes because that's going to be the wrong thing for you to do. Uh, or we need to have a, a prayer or introductions as we get started here so that uh, we can respect the culture and that we can engage with them in a respectful way and get into a partnership. Most of my community engagement strategies involve partnering and partners give and take. You, you're not a good partner if you just do a whole bunch of taking, like, I need to write a paper and I need to understand you. It's got to be a, a, a bi-directional. It's got to be a give and take. And so part of my strategy is to become involved in a community, understand their needs, do some give and take, and then build a, an agenda that's based on that community's priorities and based on the skill set that we as a cancer center can bring to the table build an agenda that makes sense for that community and move, try to move that agenda forward. COVID kind of sometimes a thing like COVID puts a stop to that. You can't say, well, I just need you to get screened for cancer. And that's all I care about when people are dying from a pandemic. So a partner would respond to that. If I were any partnership relationship, I'd have to say, wait, you're, you're suffering a huge and stunning problem here that we have to stop the cancer screening for a second to understand how to protect you from this problem. So involving in communities means understanding everything that we can about them, engaging them, understanding what they need and what we need and trying to move the agenda for all of us forward. Mm -hmm. And so um, right now in Arizona, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what sorts of disparities are in place from the work that you've done so far? What have you learned from that those partnerships? Yeah, so so what I do for the Cancer Center is, is cancer disparities. So I've done a lot of chronic disease disparities uh, in my career, but now I primarily in Arizona concentrate on cancer. So the things that I've found out that are the biggest disparity, I'd say the largest disparity in terms of cancer is liver cancer. And that's the case for both Latinos and American Indians. Liver cancer incidence and mortality is 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 uh, 
disparate, particularly for American Indians. I've had people say to me, is this because of alcoholism or drinking? It's not. The alcoholism is no different than it is for any other population, but we have environmental concerns, we have dietary concerns, we have access to care, we have a host of other things that are contributing to disparities, particularly gastric cancer disparities. That would include your liver, your pancreas, your gallbladder, gastric cancers. So some of these we know probably are dietary or related to that, uh, particularly for Latinos and liver cancer. We're talking about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and understanding diets and diets that have moved from an indigenous. Uh, most of the Latinos in the area where I work are of Mexican origin. So that means you've got a lot of fluidity across the border and diets change from indigenous diets to what's available and what's accessible here in the U.S. And that that transition often leads to cancers that are obesity related, that are uh, gastric, you know, or digestive cancer related. And these disparities come from a variety of things. They're genetic, they're environmental, they're access related. And so getting a handle on kind of what the research looks around these disparities has been one of the the kind of interesting things uh, to come to. We had some of the same problems in Kentucky. When you deal with rural Appalachia, you talk about access to fresh food and vegetables. You talk about access to uh, exercise and the ability to do those things. We know that in terms of cancer, there's 13 obesity-related cancers. And when we think about that, often people say, you know, if people would just exercise and eat right, then we wouldn't have, you think of it in terms of the people should do something. But for me, it's a much, much broader issue. Things like employment guidelines, things like access to care, access to fresh fruit and vegetables. It's difficult, uh, cultural uh, things like not telling people who are Latino to eat a Mediterranean diet. It doesn't even make sense in my head, but we often say if everybody ate a Mediterranean diet, then we'd all be healthier. Well, if we were all Mediterranean, that would make sense. But it doesn't make sense if I'm African-American to tell me my diet should primarily be olives. It's not going to happen. And so it, it shows a level of cultural insensitivity that doesn't, it's not congruent with what we do. So some of those disparities are what we see, the gastric cancer disparities, like I said, liver, pancreas, gallbladder, some of those. And we see, because we're in Arizona and we have this lovely amount of sun, we see more melanoma than people see in other parts of the country. But as you would expect, we have to concentrate on skin cancer because, you know, Yuma's probably, I think, the sunniest place in the country. And so that's a, a part of the area that we live. Um, and so we deal with some of those kind of disparities um, that are based on where you live, but primarily disparities are based on who you are, uh, your, your lack of access, your lack of uh, availability of optimal health care and opportunities. And so is this, um, could you talk a little bit more about the Cancer Moonshot Initiative that you're leading? Yeah, so Peter Lance and I, Peter's a GI uh, doc, and we lead the Moonshot uh, in Arizona. It's a consortium work between Arizona, New Mexico, and Oklahoma. So we have leads in each of those three states, and we've been given that Moonshot or the Bo Biden money that really there was this blue ribbon panel that got together and said, here's the things that we need to concentrate on this 
in this country in order to eliminate cancer. One of those things was colorectal cancer screening rates in underrepresented populations, American Indians being one of those populations where the colorectal cancer screening rates are abysmal. And it's for a number of reasons, but what we uh, were tasked to do was take evidence-based strategies, things that are already working in other communities called DNI is like dissemination and implementation science. We know kind of what works and how can we take that and put it in a community or tweak it to be available to communities that have not had uh, access to it. So in Arizona, uh, Peter and I lead the charge of going into FQHCs, IHS facilities, places where American Indians are uh, treated within the state of Arizona and trying to understand what are the barriers to colorectal cancer screening for those communities. So we look at the community surrounding the clinic. We talk to clinic staff, the providers, the people who work within the clinics. We talk to the people who are served in the clinics. We look at their electronic health records to see is there a way to make this more efficient, more reminders, more uh, tracking, ways that we can use evidence-based strategies to optimize the process by which people get into screening. We also ask community members, what are your barriers to colorectal cancer screening? We, we talked this morning, for example, to providers who say, in Flagstaff, who say, one of the barriers are if someone gets a positive test, they have to go two hours away to Tuba City to have a colonoscopy done. If they get a positive stool test, mm -hmm. then uh, we have transportation issues. We They're part of an IHS system. That means their insurance says they can only be cared for by another tribal facility. The nearest one is two hours away. So we work to navigate around those barriers within a facility to try to understand how we can increase the screening rates in that facility from every perspective that you can think of. So we go into that community and just kind of sweep it, if you will, and try to, from every perspective, see what strategies we can implement to increase that screening. We uh, spent the first couple of years navigating regulatory processes because in order to work with tribal members, there are a lot of regulatory things that are in place in a, in a good way to protect the tribal members from people working in ways that are harmful to them. So we spent a couple years just getting our regulatory things in place. We now are within several clinics, San Carlos Apache. Uh, we're going to El Rio, who serves Pasco Yaqui. We'll be in Winslow, who serves Navajo. We are in uh, North Country in Flagstaff, which also serves Navajo and a variety of other tribal members. And as we learn more at each clinic about how to work, we move to the next clinic and implement some of those strategies, put a navigator in place to help uh, with the barriers, and try to just increase the screening rates in that community where that clinic sits. And so that's a five-year project. We're in the beginning of year three. We have about a million dollars a year going forward to work within all of these communities. And like I said, it's a consortium. So people in Oklahoma and New Mexico are also working. We meet every week to talk about what are the strategies you're using in our consortium and how can we uh, get together and use similar strategies. So when you're talking about those, you're talking about Cherokee and we have Navajo that crosses New Mexico and Arizona. So we're working with some of the largest tribes uh, in the country to try to understand what the barriers are and see if we can provide a national model for how to work in tribes to increase their screening rates and decrease overall their mortality from colorectal cancer.
Wow. That's amazing. It's a fun project too. Yeah. It's been, it's been fun to go from tribe to tribe and, and see the differences. You know, we, we did some postcards, for example, for San Carlos Apache. And we had mistakenly put something, a symbol that was a Navajo symbol on there. And they, our navigator immediately said, oh, nobody's going to like this postcard because you have something from Navajo on here. And so, again, you got to use those community engaged strategies to make sure you're respectful of I would have never known it would, you know, it would have never occurred to me. This little tiny symbol in the corner of this postcard is something that's particular to Navajo and it will offend a San Carlos Apache member. And so, but that's why we use community members to help us make sure we're being, uh, doing the right thing. Do you have any other story? Do you have any, um, like stories of like, or like specific examples of like, cultural differences between different tribes you've worked you've worked with that you would be able to share there are uh, for me it's just been such a learning process about differences within there's a lot of similarities but also a lot of cultural differences and i find those out when i'm working like like i said with that navigator and that's my prime example the one i just used about having a picture that was a picture of of something that that you or i or maybe anyone would consider just this is an American Indian picture, but American Indian tribes are sovereign and they're very distinct. Mm -hmm. And so we go into that and we let them lead us on everything that should be from the postcard to how we should greet people, to how we should talk to people, to uh, the introductions and the uh, acknowledgement of the land that we're on. All of that was is very um, new to me that you, you start a meeting with acknowledgement that we are on tribal land and what part of that land and acknowledgement of people's ancestors and all of that in each community that we work that's different and unique to that community and we allow the space for people to uh, have that and also the different languages the the very variety of languages that are unique to each different tribe that sit side by side have their own language and the way that they speak and the dialect and i i think i didn't understand the 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 enormity of languages that we have in this country as pertains to american indians that each particular tribe has their own language and way of communicating with each other and so th that was new and interesting uh for me that to go 10 miles down the road and be in another tribe, there's going to be a whole other language that they're speaking there. Uh, I guess uh, I should have known that, but not living in Arizona, but living in rural Appalachia, I, you know, for a few years, I did not realize that. So this is kind of a more general question, but, um, and I know you probably touched on a lot of those things, but what do you love about your job and what are some challenges or things that uh, you don't like about your job? Well, that's a that, interesting question. So <laughs> I, you can clearly see what I love about my job is working with different people, right. uh, working, learning about different cultures, understanding how people are different and how their idea of health is so unique to them that I can learn something from every single person. I, I love that about my job, the idea that people own their heritage and their culture and that that uh, it's different and unique. And I, I really appreciate that and appreciate the opportunity to do that. I love that I have a diverse team uh, of people that are 
uh, bilingual, multilingual, multicultural, and that we can come to the table and share ideas in a respectful way, and that every day I get to work with someone who's proudly Navajo, who uh, my assistant director is Latino, and who cares so deeply about Latino. He uh, works with Mexican origin men and, and their health, and that I get to come to the table with people who are passionate about communities and their health. Um, the challenges, as one would expect, are working with a less than diverse leadership team mm -hmm. uh, who have been used to the way the majority population operates in the world and trying to be the solo voice at the table, the leadership table who says, maybe we should think about this a little differently. And maybe, you know, when people have been what they think of as successful in doing what they do, which the majority population has, when they think of diversity as, let me teach you how to be like me. When the diversity should be, let me teach you that it's not optimal for me to be like you. It's better if we all come to the table and we're different, not if you teach me how to be the same. And so maintaining the challenge is maintaining uh, a, a unique identity at a table where people are trying to force you into the norm mm -hmm. and being very secure and being uniquely different from everybody else who's at the leadership table and not squelching that difference, but helping them to celebrate that as the opportunity for this to get better. If you not force me to the mainstream, but actually join me in understanding that the differences are what will propel us forward. And really, the challenge is getting people to see that what you've been doing has not worked. So let's try something a little bit different. You know, I, I always get told, well, you know, we have rules and we have regulations and this is how we do it. And then I say, has that been working for you? Because if it had been, I wouldn't be here. If you if you if what we were doing already worked, if the rules were the right rules, then we wouldn't need to change them. But so you've got to push the boundaries all the time. And the challenges are when you're the person who's always pushing the boundaries you uh people get are uncomfortable if everybody's comfortable in the room with me i'm probably not doing my job and uh most of the time people are uncomfortable and that's challenging for everybody and would you say that um like you had mentioned earlier in the interview that like growing up um and like all along your path you've never been like sort of like the traditional path or you've always been like living in your difference and that power. So would you say that has given you some, um, the strength that you need to sort of like stay in those rooms and stick to your ground about? It, it's given me some of that strength. And you know, as you, as you grow older, you kind of live in, in that difference anyway. You learn that being different is, is powerful. And, and it, it's, uh, it might be uncomfortable, but it's how you make a difference. And so you have to kind of grow into that. But for sure, having been different the whole time has given me the opportunity to understand how that difference should be celebrated and not not changed. That my hair doesn't need to look like everybody else. I don't need to dress like everybody else. I don't need to speak like everybody else. I need to help them understand how speaking like I speak or dressing like I dress or having hair like mine is something that they should embrace 
uh, and that it'll help them be better. So yeah, it, it's been, uh, I have, like I said, two daughters who probably the next generation will be much more comfortable in being different, looking different, talking, speaking differently. You know, I have a daughter in medical school and she is, you know, breaking down those barriers. I have a daughter who is a lesbian and who works with lesbian communities, who's helping them to understand how they can be involved in research and be different. So I think that difference has not only helped me at the leadership table, but helped me to kind of prepare a new generation of people who will be much more comfortable in celebrating those differences and, and, and kind of breaking down those barriers for people who are coming after me. Yeah. Um, so uh, what are some hobbies and interests you have outside of work? How do you uh, de-stress and unwind and what do you enjoy? <laughs> So I, I have some, some good hobbies, particularly some pandemic hobbies. I've been kind of drawing and painting during the pandemic, you know, doing some artistic things. And tomorrow I'm going to do a Zoom with Marcus Samuelson, who's an Ethiopian chef, because one of my side things is to cook stuff and to love people by cooking them food and serving it to them. So I'm going to do this Zoom with Marcus Samuelson where I learn how to cook whatever, some shrimp and grits and some collard greens, some comfort food that I probably know how to cook, but one of my, but who doesn't want to cook with Marcus Samuelson? My God, we, I'm just so excited that I'm going to get this box in the mail, that I'm going to cook this food tomorrow and I'm going to serve it to people. So some of my sidelines are cooking and serving people and then, um, painting and drawing. So I, and I have a dog who dogs always help people to de-stress. You know, I'm surprised she hasn't run into this. I have a sheep-a-doodle who will run into this room and just love me and give me the opportunity to not be so stressed out because the dog just loves you unconditionally. <laughs> and you can come out of a stressful Zoom meeting and the dog just kisses you in the face and says, it doesn't matter what those people said to you. I still love you. So I've got those hobbies and my family and my gorgeous children. And I have a grandson. And another grandson on the way. My daughter and her wife are having a baby in a few weeks. And so I've got a collective family unit that we have to Zoom these days because some are in Kentucky and others places. But that's how I de-stress is just connecting with my family. And what advice would you give to students who are interested in pursuing a career in science? I think we've got to have lots of different perspectives in science. So I, I give all of my students the advice who are going into science to find something you're passionate about, find something that you care deeply about, and then learn how to do the science surrounding that. Don't start with the science, start with the passion. And when you find, you know, that you're passionate about something, it's easy. And I think this is the case with other careers too, besides science. But when you find something that you care deeply about and you build a career on that, it doesn't feel like work every day. It feels like I'm doing something that I care about and I'm changing something that I care deeply about. And it may take some time to get there. But if you start with a passion, you would, I think, end with a passion. I, I That's what's kept me doing this for 30 something years is developing a career about something that I really care deeply about. So I think we need scientists that care deeply about what they're doing, that care about their communities, that want to change things for their communities. And I love mentoring those students who, who have that and then figuring out how to give them the skill set to make those differences. 
Behind the Beaker is a daily wildcat podcast created by Alexandra Perry. The Daily Wildcat, online all the time at dailywildcat.com. Thank you, Dr. Hatcher, everyone involved in this podcast, science editor Amit Sial, managing editor and producer Pascal Albright, Jillian Barch, the Science Desk, and Arizona Student Media. Behind the Beaker is a podcast about the unbelievable science and even more unbelievable scientists behind them at the University of Arizona. For more UA science stories, visit dailywildcat.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Daily Wildcat. This has been Behind the Beaker, a Daily Wildcat podcast.